Welcome everyone. I really want to thank David for being willing to stay up. It's it's now past midnight Tuesday morning for you now, David. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah. So David is the professor of education at Calvin University. And David, I think we all know you. Well, we feel like we know you very well <laughs> from your recent um, time here at iTech in Adelaide. And just reading your book again recently for me, it was wonderful. I could hear you telling the stories. Um, David, do you want to say anything about your role and what you're doing? And then we'll get started. Um, just introduce, tell us what your work involves at the moment. Uh, at the moment, I've got um, three jobs at Calvin, basically. So uh, technically, two-sevenths of me as a professor of education in the education program. Half of that's in the undergraduate program, half's in the graduate program. So I teach in our master's program. Um, another two-sevenths of me is uh, coordinating a new thing called the uh, Global Faculty Development Institute, which is starting to develop uh, a set of online resources for faculty development for faculty at Christian colleges around the world, um, as well as here at Calvin. Uh, and then three sevenths of me directs the Kaiser Institute for Christian Teaching and Learning, which is our research institute focused on Christian education. So mm. that's all supposed to add up to one full-time job theoretically. Yeah. <laughs> and so where are you in your academic year at the moment? Um, we just started this spring semester um, two weeks ago. So, uh, yeah, we have, a, we have a winter semester in January that's an intensive for a month. And then uh, the, the, the quote-unquote spring semester um, started, although spring's a little way off. It was, uh, it was minus 15 a couple of days ago, so uh, mm. Celsius. So, mm. um, well, um, because I'm hosting, I get to ask or, or pave the way for some first questions I don't know um, and I was just thinking reading your your book again and the case study where you talk about how you started your first German language class uh, mm -hmm. with the groups introducing themselves I was just thinking we're in about our third week of the new school year uh, for us in Australia some some schools it might only be their second week some it's their fourth mostly it's the third week of school and I'm thinking that some people might be reading that book now and think ah I've messed up the first two weeks I've um I've been all about the assessments I've been all about the rules I've I haven't gotten to know That's my students Rachel yet Diprose, can you please go to the front car park and meet your mum that is Rachel Diprose can you please you're hearing the announcement the that's that's the reality of school happening here. But anyway, um, so David, is is it too late for us um, to go back and think? Okay, tomorrow's a new a new day with our new classes that we've only gotten to know for maybe only we might have only had four or five lessons mm -hmm. with them so far. Mm -hmm. Is it too late for us to recapture some of the essence of what you were? sharing in that little case study scenario yeah totally abandon hope all is lost um that's <laughs> uh <laughs> i i think um i mean there, there is some 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 research that pretty strongly suggests that the you know the early days of a semester or a school year um can be quite formative and it's it's harder to change direction a little bit later on because you've already got some 
some rhythms that are built up, some routines are built up, students have got expectations, and if you suddenly do a hard left turn, um, once the vehicle's in, in motion, then, you know, somebody's nose hits the window. So, um, uh, but having said that, um, it depends a little bit, I think, how you structure your semester. So, uh, Ken Badley, um, colleague up here um, in Canada, he, uh, he's got a book out uh, recently called, I think it's called Curriculum Planning with Design Language, and he talks about um, having good transitions between uh, units or sequences within your semester, so that if you, if you come into the end of a topic or a, uh, or a teaching sequence, to, um, to bring it to a really clear closure um, and then have a really clear transition and then make it really clear when you're starting the next thing to make sure that that's all well structured and you don't just kind of drift on from one thing to the next with it never, never really being quite clear when you left one building and entered another one. So that actually gives you a number of, of points during a semester when you, you can actually sort of say, okay, this is, you know, this is how we've done it for the last four weeks. We're wrapping up here. Here's what we learned. Um, now we're going to change up a few things, right, and do a, do a very explicit transition. So I, th I think if I wanted to change partway through the semester, I'd be wanting to use that kind of strategy um, and making it very explicit that a change is happening, and then you're more likely to, to drag a few students along with you, I think. Yeah, no, that's a good thought. So we might have a new topic that we're about to start in a week or so that we can be cr curious and creative about in our beginning of that topic, that new topic. And recover a little bit perhaps of um, the first couple of weeks where maybe we lost some time. David, I have one other question and then I will throw it over to everyone else. Um, in, your, in your introduction to on Christian teaching that we're talking about today and um, in chapter one, you do mention our Protestant way of thinking about the teacher and the role of the teacher mm -hmm. um, and, the, and, and how we teach. And that really struck a chord with me in these last couple of weeks thinking about even um well who can we who can we learn from then beyond our protestant role of the teacher i suppose i'm asking what do you yeah. mean by our yeah. protestant understanding of the teacher yeah who could we possibly learn from and think about in challenging our formational understanding of that protestant uh concept of the teacher yeah, I mean, I think I think the <laughs> uh, the smallest thing I meant by it was that just that I know more about Protestant schools than I do about Catholic or Orthodox ones, right? So I didn't didn't want to make a claim that was too big, um, and and claim to know everything that was going on in every kind of school. Um, but I think I was also trying to hint, without fully knowing all the answers to this, that um, there's been a strong tendency in Protestant traditions to make the sermon central to worship. Um, Whereas, you know, for, for in the Catholic tradition, the, the Eucharist is much more central, uh, for instance, and the sermon's much shorter. Uh, whereas a lot of a lot of Protestant traditions, um, uh, you sort of sing some songs to get to the sermon, and then and then sort of a good half to two thirds of the time is spent sitting listening to somebody talk. So I do think we have this. We, we have a fairly deep investment in um, listening to people talk from behind a podium as the primary learning mode. In, in Protestant churches. Um, now that then combines with the fact that the, the Reformation was was iconoclastic. So there was a there was a, a big investment in getting rid of images um, of, of various kinds. And so there was this notion that not only is somebody going to talk for 45 minutes and that's the main way that truth comes to you, but they're also going to do it 
without any visuals. Um, you know, we're going to get rid of all the statues and the paintings and the and, and so on. And you know, there were some there were some good reasons for that in context at the time in terms of um, superstition and bad theology and so on. Um, and then combine that with a third tendency that I think is is more Protestant which is um, the way in which Protestantism is combined with modern individualism, so that we, we think of ourselves primarily as individuals who make our own decisions and sort of function by willpower, um, so that we, we sort of need to be exhausted all the time to do the right thing, and then we decide to do the right thing, and we work very hard at it, and, and so on. So when you combine those three things together, right, a very strong trust in people standing talking as the, as the most important way of learning, um, very little focus on environment while that's going on um, mm -hmm. and, and sort of an emphasis on the hearer being supposed to just listen and process it and then decide to respond. Um, so this emphasis on decision. Um, now, again, there, there, are, there are reasons for all of those things, right? And, and this is not to knock any of those things, but it, it has put us in a position where what we're less good at spotting is the ways in which learning is also shaped by the environment um, by practices that happen over time, by habits, um, by liturgies, by the, the sort of the patterns in, in the way that we behave, the things that don't necessarily pass through our conscious mind and our decision-making processes and so on. And there's just, you know, tons of evidence these days from, from psychology and related disciplines that, that an awful lot of what goes on in our behavior isn't driven by conscious decisions. Um, so, um, when you look at you know Catholic traditions, uh, Eastern Orthodox traditions, you get you get often more of a focus on beauty, more of a focus on liturgy, um, more of a focus on practices on community, um, than than in than in some Protestant kinds of settings. Um, yeah. And uh, I mean, at a really simple level, it it, it makes me think of. Uh, uh, about a year ago, I was teaching a, an education class, um, 15 students who were about to go do their student teaching uh, for the first time the next semester. We were trying to get them ready to stand in terror in front of a classroom for the first time. And uh, it was a pretty intense class. It was, uh, we, we, we sort of met for like four hours at a time in the morning and then they spent time in schools and, and so on. And one of the things I did that semester was um, we did devotions every time we met, but I did them in a different mode every time we met because I wanted to kind of pull apart their implicit notion that devotions means that somebody stands up at the front and reads two paragraphs mm -hmm. from a Christian book and, and then says a prayer and then, and then we carry on with whatever we were going to do anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so I tried to find as many different ways as possible of, inter as in, of interacting with scripture and prayer. Um, I didn't always do it at the start of class. I, you know, I, I'm actually quite curious about what happens to devotion, devotions if you occasionally do it halfway through class, right? Or you do it at the end, because sometimes the fact that it's always at the start of class means that we can easily compartmentalize it and ignore it because we know that it's the first five minutes and then we're going to get on to learning. Mm -hmm. So I was just sort of playing around with it. And um, at the end of the semester, uh, all the students came around to my house. We, we, had a, we had a British tea party and had scones and clotted cream and they, they wore sort of pearls and long gloves and hats and things. And we kind of <laughs> had fun on the last day of the semester. And um, I just asked them what the, most, what the most transformative learning moment was for them in the semester. What was the, you know, what was the really life-changing moment? And three out of 15, right? So this, this, was, this was the one that got the, the, the largest single vote where, they, where three of them had the same event. Um, 
was a moment I'd forgotten about when one morning I'd come in, um, I'd actually had them come forward and sit on the floor at the front of the classroom, which uh, you, you don't usually get to do after primary, after elementary school. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so we all sat on the floor. I read out a psalm. Um, then we sat in silence for about two minutes. Then I just asked them to call out one word for how they were feeling. And then we sat in silence for another couple of minutes. And then we went back and we carried on with the class. That was the most transformative moment for three out of 15 of my students. Um, and, and I don't have a magic answer to what it was about that that was transformative, right? Maybe they've got almost no silence in their lives, right? But, but this thing that was, that was kind of more liturgical, it wasn't offering a homily, it wasn't offering my interpretation of a passage or a blessed thought for the day. It was just, we just sat together, mm. we read scripture, we observed silence, everyone got a chance to say how they were doing. And that was a really important morning for, mm. for a number mm. of them. So, mm. so even in terms of the way we explicitly do faith in the classroom, I think sometimes there are things to be learned from traditions that are, that are less sermon focused, right? Yeah. You know, alongside the ideas and the explaining and, and, and so yeah. on. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then we expanded out into the kind of things I'm writing about in the book. I mean, trying to think about how time and space and um, furniture and, and, mm. and all mm. kinds of things are affecting the way we learn and a part of how we enact faith in the classrooms, right? That sometimes the way you work out faith is the way you arrange the chairs, not, not, not just which sentences you say as a result of reading the yeah. Bible passage. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. No, that, that's, a, that's good for us to just challenge our own formation as teachers and, the power that we hold subconsciously sometimes um, thinking that it all has to be us to the, to the students rather than sitting in a circle or as you said, appreciating beauty or silence or uh, Mm -hmm. other elements that usually aren't part of our tradition. You're, you're, yeah, that's good. Do we have anyone else that would like to comment on that or perhaps ask a new question? You can type away or you can just ask away. Like I might throw to, um, Josh, whether you've got a question waiting there or anyone else got a question, you can start typing and Karen Hooper here is sitting next to me. So she's going to flag some questions too that perhaps have been typed. Excellent. Josh, do you have a question? I do. David, um, uh, I'm trying to articulate my question. Um, One of the things that struck me in the open of your book in this first chapter was um, the idea, and I think you mentioned it, um, that the, the Protestant conception is that Christian education is reliant on uh, ensuring that uh, the content is Christian, whatever that mm-hmm. means. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. not, not, only what, not only is the content Christian, but I think we can assume that we all agree what, the, what Christian content means. Um, uh, so my, my question is, uh, if that's the Protestant view, uh, when you're at your work or uh, education uh, specialists or teachers or university, do you see people think that? Or is that just merely theoretical, historical? Or I mean, is that uh, uh, 20-year-olds coming to you thinking that? Or is that 50-year-olds thinking that? Who's thinking that? I, I think it's changing. Um, I mean, I, th- I think we've, we've come out of a period where that was very strongly and explicitly the model. Um, so um, I go back to, I mean, in terms of the whole discussion that gets called integration of faith and learning in North America, right? This sort of sense of how you relate faith to, uh, to things outside of theology. Um, Al, Al, Al Plantinga, who was one of the big figures here of a generation back, really important Christian philosopher, he, he said in one of his published lectures that um, 
that the connecting faith and learning basically meant that you needed to formulate true propositions that stated the relationship between theological truths and truths in other disciplines. That, mm. that was the that was the task, right? That we needed a we needed basically a collection of true sentences that told us how theology related to sociology or how theology related to English lit or whatever. Um, and so, you know, that, that was that was quite a powerful and explicit paradigm. And and um, you can't really understand. I don't know to what, de- to what degree folk down there have read uh, Janie Smith's books. Um, a little bit. My, my colleague's office is about 50 feet over there. Um, but, you know, that's very much the paradigm that he's reacting against in books like Desiring the Kingdom, right? And sort of saying that we're not just brains on sticks, right? And uh, um, that, it, you know, it's not just about sort of articulating correct theological positions or articulating Christian philosophies and making sure everybody understands them. And, and to a degree, that fed certain versions of the whole Christian worldview movement, right? The idea was that, that you know, what you need is a Christian worldview. And that could mean a number of different things. But what it often ended up meaning is there's a certain set of propositions about creation and about the fall and about redemption and so on that you need to make sure you understand. Um, and again, it was often a very intellectually oriented kind of model. Um, and there are strengths to that, right? There's important things in there. But um, now what, what what's changing more recently, um, to give a concrete example, there's a research team in the science uh, division um, at Calvin. And, you know, Calvin's a reformed university. I mean, we're, we're the source of the old paradigm as well. Um, and, um, but there's a team that based in the, uh, biochemistry department that have actually been working on looking at, um, the practices that intentional Christian communities of various kinds use to sustain community. So sort of quasi monastic intentional communities and the degree to which those practices are applicable to collaborative lab work settings, because there's a lot of discussion in scientific literature at the moment about the fact that, um, most interesting scientific problems these days out in the real world are not actually disciplinary, right? You're not usually just doing biology or just doing physics or whatever, they're usually interdisciplinary and they usually involve teams. So the average working scientist has at least 13 collaborators. And, uh, and, and that creates problems with actually getting along with each other and working together when you've been formed with different concepts and, um, and so on. And so they're looking at these, these kind of, what are the practices of intentional community that allow you to sustain um, fellowship around a problem and how does that how does that relate to how Christians do lab work now that's just a very different way of framing the question to what was happening 15 20 years ago if you had a conversation about faith and science um, because it's it's not an argument about how old the earth is or um, or whether you should go for critical realism or um, you know, that kind of thing it's it's uh, it's much more focused on on embodied practices um, which doesn't mean the old model's being tossed out. I mean, there's still that stuff going on as well, but but it's, uh, um, I do think it's changing. Um, yeah, Mike, Mike, I wonder, I, I really pre- I think it's useful, really useful. Um, just reading some things and thinking about it, um, I wonder, and I don't know if this is true, but I sometimes get the sense that uh, the concept of worldview and uh, propositional content um, uh, truths, propositional truths, content being Christian, you know, locking in those things yeah. um, is um, oh, uh, hyperbolic language. Uh, poo-pooed as being old hat. Now, that's not, I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm exaggerating perhaps. But I, I get nervous about that because um, saying there's a new paradigm to think about it, I'm not saying you're saying, if someone says there's a new paradigm to think about um, yeah. how we, what Christian education is, if we say um, 
uh, a Christian worldview framework, not applied to the heart and practical ways. Mm-hmm. Therefore, let's not think about worldview. Is like saying um, people in the name of Christ did wicked things. Therefore, yeah. Christianity is not meritorious. And so, yeah. I, so uh, um, uh, is there a danger of moving away from now? And I, uh, I, I think it's more. I believe that it is more than just having the right Christian content, mm-hmm. uh, the right propositional truths. Is there a yeah. danger of, of losing that in the desire to have not just that? Yeah, I need an hour to answer that question, and I'd want to try to say a lot of careful things. Um, sure, there's a danger, right? And, you know, we all know Christians are only allowed to think about one thing at once. So as soon as the new one comes away, you have to toss all the other ones out. You're not allowed to actually uh, try to think about more than one thing simultaneously because that, that would be too hard. Um, so, um, so yeah, sure, there's a danger. Every time we change focus, we lose things because we're just lousy at paying attention. Um, at the same time... Um, there's a discernible tendency among students that I encounter here at Calvin, many of whom have been through Christian K-12 schools, yeah, and many of whom have learned a lot about, have heard a lot about Christian worldview. Yeah. And I've often heard a somewhat simplistic version of Christian worldview yeah, that amounts to learning a basic set of Christian worldview categories and using them to answer every conceivable question. Yeah. And they're pretty jaundiced about it. Um, they've, they've sort of come to the conclusion that it's a way of avoiding thinking. Now, I don't think that was part of the intention of the Christian worldview movement. I think, I think it's, um, it's what the average practice has often been. Now, that makes it tricky, even if you want to keep worldview language, um, to keep it when what it means for a lot of, peop- lot of the students you use it to is this thing that doesn't work. Yes. So, um, so there's that complication as well. It's just psychological plausibility, right? Well, you know that once once a movement's run ten or fifteen years and people have had time to ruin it, um, then you know the, the language becomes problematic in some settings. So, so often when I teach, I, I, I mean, I'm very committed to worldview-oriented teaching, but I very rarely use the word worldview in class. That's useful um, for those kinds of reasons. Um, and I actually, you know, if you take if you take the book on Christian teaching, I mean, you, you could take the book and you could redescribe the whole thing in worldview language, right? I'm saying your worldview affects how you teach. Um, I've got some strategic reasons for not majoring in that language so much. Um, it has baggage. So the lang- you're saying the language yeah. has baggage. And, it, and, yeah. and it, it, it strikes up in people's minds connotations of um, heartless, uh, not connecting with reality. It's a yeah. set of prop. It's more abstract. I, th- I think one of the connotations that students here have, I don't know how this has played out in Australia, but um, I think some of my students feel like Christian worldview has been used as a way of closing down questions rather than opening yeah. them up, yeah, right? But because we've got a Christian worldview, we already know the answer to every difficult question yeah, yeah, um, because all, all we've got to do is run it through this little Christian worldview machine yeah. and, and then we'll have the right answer about politics and we'll have the right answer about the environment and we'll have the right answer about sex and so on. And then they get older and they find life's just way more complicated yeah. than their teacher in high school said it was. And it suddenly feels like it feels like it doesn't work anymore. So I think, I think when, when worldview frames are used as a way of like reading the Christian worldview book and now I know how to give a Christian answer to all the questions, that's part of what I hear students reacting against here. And, and when I do talk to students about worldview, I say to them, I said, I don't think it was ever meant to be that, right? You know, it's, it, it, it's meant to be just like a few, um, 
reference points to give you some some like big picture ways of getting some hooks into the Christian narrative, but it wasn't meant to shut down all the questions yeah. along the way, right? It's 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 meant to open up spaces for you to think in. So, um, so I think we can keep we can keep worldview talk going if we can successfully combine it with showing that we are willing to think honestly and in complex ways about the world. Um, I, uh, I'll share personally, um, uh, having, I taught at uh, Covenant Christian High School in Indianapolis for eight years um, and uh, very strong in worldview thinking and I, I'm, I'm, I enjoy that sort of thought. Uh, things changed when my daughter turned 13 mm-hmm. and started going, hang on dad, this is all very neat, but let me inside. So just um, not not changed. Uh, I was challenged again to think about, like, which so I found that helpful. I found I, I find this challenge of making it not merely a framework that we solve all the questions <laughs> because yeah. it doesn't doesn't work for my daughter. And yeah. and um, I, I wonder if yeah, that's good. And what I guess one more little thought is part of what the last chapter of the book is about. I don't know if any of you got there, but. Um, is, is that um, there's good empirical evidence just from reviewing the literature that 30 plus years of a very strong focus on Christian worldview didn't generate an attention to classroom pedagogy in the North American literature. So I also think there are some things that the worldview paradigm didn't succeed in helping us to think about. And so I, th- I think that's a big part of my burden here is just sort of saying in the book is just saying, there's some other things we need to think about, and it turns out worldview language wasn't whatever we did with it, but didn't turn out to be that good at helping us think about these things. So let's think about these things. Maybe then we can come back to the worldview language and say how it all fits together. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you used, uh, if I may, Fiona, I'm just I'm getting excited here. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, David, you used the used the, the word pedagogy, and I really appreciated the idea uh, of. Um, this idea of it being a hospice, a house, a home, mm-hmm. a place and space of yep. learning. Um, Thank you. Uh, That's my favourite thought in the book as well. Oh, yeah. great. Well, there yeah. you go. <laughs> um, did you make that up? Or, because uh, <laughs> I love it. It's really good. How does, that, how does that show in the way that you teach or help others teach? Um, I think it came out of, you know, I started my career as a language teacher, right? And, and you know, I've taught French, German, Russian, um, ESL in different schools at different times. And I think language teaching, even more than some other disciplines, was really dominated for the second half of the 20th century um, by talk of teaching methods, right? And so teaching was a method. It was a set of steps you go to. And if, 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 if two or more language teachers are gathered together, they shall talk about which method they use, right? It's, uh, um, and uh, so there's the, I, I spent quite a number of years wrestling with that, and I wrote a number of papers about it, trying to deconstruct this notion of like, teaching is this set of steps that you go through, one, two, three, four. And the problem with method talk is a method is something you do to students. Um, right, you follow the method to try and get the right results to come out the other end. Yep. Um, and some of, the, some of the, I mean, other people have written critiques of this, one of the problems with method is that it almost carries in itself the idea that even if it's not working, you keep going because you're following the method, right? So mm-hmm. it turns out the student's not learning. What do you do? Do you quit using the method to try and help them learn or do you carry on even though they're not learning? Um, so I think I've been on the lookout for other metaphors for what teaching means for quite a long time. Um, and then I got into hospitality talk through thinking about hospitality to the stranger and what that had to do with language teaching and mm. um, intercultural learning and I wrote about that for a while and then I just stumbled across this um, this little 
factoid about the University of Paris in the 14th century, right? And, 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 and what sort of blew me away was that these, these hostels they lived in were called the pedagogium, right? And, mm. and just this notion that you live in the pedagogy, right? Was, was just that, that, that was just a, a, a nice little connection that, that just got my mind going in different ways. Um, so I think for me, for me, it just reorients the, what happens when I plan a course. So instead of walking into class saying, which method am I gonna to use to achieve results? I'm walking into class saying, what kind of shared space am I going to create for us to live in for the next month? Mm. And it just opens up a different set of questions. Um, and um, yeah, mm. I mean, all, you know, all the questions I try to open up in the rest of the book. So. I, I really like your um, metaphor of the home as well. Um, but I often think of Grand Designs, the show with Kevin McLeod, mm -hmm. because um, sometimes it feels like what we've got to work with is... Um, has crumbled and fallen as a home. Like I have year 11 religion studies class and my intentions to do all these amazing things to make my students feel like they're in my home and we're learning together. Um, you know, mm -hmm. the bell goes or there's an announcement over the PA or there's an excursion that I didn't know about that day or the data projector is not working or yeah. I'm in a science lab, um, you know, that I have no control over how the furniture goes. So sometimes we feel like what we intend the actual structure the actual blueprint for the home the this the plans for the home are really um need rethinking as well um right so what can we do about that david if we have no control over the classroom uh, furniture that we actually have yeah what can we do about that well, I mean, I, I'm, I, I've got this real, being British, I've got this strong streak of pragmatism, right? So, so I always tend to think, you know, you, you, you look for the things that you can vary, right? So, so sometimes, you know, the stuff that you can't, nobody teaches in a situation of complete freedom. Uh, and in fact, nobody should, right? Because you, you actually shouldn't be able to teach in complete autonomy from your surroundings and your community yeah. and, and so on. So everybody's got constraints. Everybody's got things they have to adjust to their, to, to, to their surroundings. But let's suppose you've been given the science lab to teach math and by some, you know, foolish administrator and, and uh, um, you know, you can't do much about the physical environment. I, I think of, um, I can't remember if I mentioned this example at the conference, but uh, um, physics teacher down the road from here who actually, uh, one of her practices that I like is each student is assigned a day in the semester on a rotation to be the person who is responsible for the well-being of everybody else. Um, and so that means for that student that day, if somebody's absent, they're supposed to be the first person who notices. They're supposed to email the student who's absent, find out why they're absent. They're supposed to make sure they've got a good set of notes um, to give them afterwards. They've got to make sure they get them those notes. They've got to welcome them back to class the next day. Um, they've got to notice if anybody in class is not doing well today and liaise with the teacher, um, uh, whether that's not doing well academically or not doing well emotionally or whatever. So and everybody gets a turn to be that person. Now, again, I think, you know, over a semester, what, what does that do to the kind of community that that physical class turns into, mm. even if their classroom sucks, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, even if they can't do lots of beautiful group work or whatever, right? So like, to me, there are always variables that you can that you can shift, right? Yeah. There's, there's always something you can do differently to try to get the kind of, the kind of ethos you're looking for because, um, you know, part of, part of the home is the physical environment, but it's also just... The atmosphere um, in the home, yeah. You know, you yeah. can think about the... the, the uh, you can think about analogies here. I mean, you know, if, if, if this happens to a lot of people around the world, right, if your family gets, gets displaced, 
right? Mm. You end up living in a tent in a refugee camp, then how do you start turning that into a home, right? So, well, you start building rituals together and you start deciding, you know, whose favorite corner that is and you, you know, and so on, right? So, so I, I don't think, I don't want the image to be about sort of waiting until you get the classroom that has the sofa in the corner and the, you know, the mood lighting and the, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I don't want the Martha Stewart version of, of, of home, if that means anything down there. Um, yeah. like the yep. Yep. Guru kind of, yeah. um, I think to me it's much more about like, even in fragile spaces, how do you, how do you start creating a particular kind of community together? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jay, Jay Chavascus, have you got a question for us? Uh, I do. I was, I've been wondering, in the context I'm in, uh, how do I uh, capture other people about the way their practices tell a story mm-hmm. and how it shapes if they're not a reader or in some cases in schools if they're not believers, yet we want a consistent approach. How can we go about convincing them or broadening their understanding of pedagogy and the impact on individuals? Yeah, I wish I had a magic answer to that one. Um, I've been trying a few things. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with the What If Learning website, but um, one of the things we've tried, whatiflearning.com, one of the things we've been trying to do is to provide resources that only require you to read a couple of hundred words and actually give you a concrete example to go away and play with. Um, so that's sort of one avenue we've been trying is to actually give teachers really short, concrete things to read. Not, it's not a book or an article, right? It's just a, it's one web page. Um, and you can filter that by age range and, and, and subject area. Um, I also think uh, that sometimes instead of asking like the big abstract question of like, you know, how do we change our practices? Because like changing everything is really impractical to kind of zoom in on one really specific practice and then actually have a community conversation about it. Yes, good. Um, an example that I'm pretty sure I spoke about at the, at the Adelaide conference last summer, um, at least it was summer for me, was, was homework. Right? And I've, I've worked on this with a few schools, just simply raising the thought, right? How many of your homeworks are designed to be done alone? And therefore, how many of your homeworks are creating isolation within families outside school hours? And could you decide, could you design one homework activity that builds community in some way, either by getting students to listen to an elderly person or interview a pastor or have a discussion with their parents or, you know, watch a TV show with some relatives and discuss it, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a school down the road that I did this with as a, as a, as a, a PD day. And two days after we did the PD day, I got an email from a parent in the school community saying, I don't know what you did with our teachers on Tuesday, but it's already affecting the dynamics of our family life. Mm. Um, and so that sort of gathering the teachers around this one thing and saying, what if we all thought about this one aspect of homework? And, uh, and it almost doesn't matter which thing you choose, right? But some particular kind of Christian practice and then to have a, a whole school conversation about it makes it much mm. more focused and easy to respond. And it also means you don't necessarily have to sign up to the Belgic Confession in order to be able to make that move, right? That you can, uh, um, you know, everybody or a, a broad range of people might be able to appreciate the value of investing in relationships within your wider school community mm-hmm. and, and using that as a creative way to think about pedagogy. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so that's sort of, you know, that that's that's one example. Um, I, I could, you know, could spin off other examples, but I think the the, the advice I'm throwing out here is choose one practice. And sort of hammer it for a month with everybody, um, and ignore everything else for a while. Mm. Do you think that um, 
educate like leaders of teaching and learning should should direct that like decide what one practice or should they ask the staff um who does, who does that come from I think I'd, I, yeah, no, I think I would just choose one and plunge in. I think, I, I, I think that, that, that it depends a little bit on the school culture. I mean, there's value yeah. in asking the staff, but it could also lead to like three weeks of, 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 of floundering and, 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 and even then the answer is imposed on two thirds of the people who didn't vote for it. Um, so, yeah, I think for this kind of thing to, to get, to get a process going, I think I'd, I'd be more likely to want to come in and say, hey, we're all going to think about this for a month. You know, if, if, mm. if this sparks new ideas, you can choose the next one. Um, can, I, can I just ask a, a follow-up? So pedagogical approaches such as direct instruction, mm -hmm. which I'm not sure how much language teachers over time have used that, but is very much a bland lack of relational sort of interaction. Mm -hmm. How do we wage a war against that? And do, or do we need to? Yeah, war's an interesting metaphor, isn't it? I was going to say is with that, bazookas. Is, that damage, um, is it damaging yeah. to relations? Is it, is it helpful in, in developing that home? Or is it something that we should just accept as a place? Yeah, I, th I think... I think Sometimes, especially people who are sort of invested in that model, do often need to hear at some point that it's sometimes the right approach, right? That the, the, there are moments to just explain stuff, right? And, and you know, that, that's not evil. And as an ingredient in a larger pattern of, you know, teaching strategies, but, but like not for an hour at a time um, and, and so not as the dominant. I'm talking about that scripted yeah. response sort of thing that seems to, particularly with spelling and maths mastery, really pervades yeah. types of models. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't mind people doing that for five or ten minutes. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, so, so then it becomes, um, I, I just think change is difficult because you're, if, if you feel like you've mastered one particular approach and you're kind of making it work, then asking you to change is asking you to take a really big risk that you're going to become a bad teacher now because you might not be good at the new thing, right? So, so I think a lot of this, um, it, it, it's people need to keep some sense of security, um, and, and, and there needs to be attention to sort of how teachers learn, right? And, and you know, in worst case scenarios, I've, I've watched principals stand at the front of a room full of teachers and basically tell them all they're doing it wrong and need to shape up. And, and like, nobody learns that way. <laughs> so, mm, yeah. um, yep. so how do you provide, again, how do you provide gradual ramps, right? So, so can, you, can you provide an alternative that we can all invest in and say everybody's going to try and do at least 10 minutes of this, right? Yeah. Um, and, and sort of provide a more gradualistic process towards change. Yeah, uh, yeah. Otherwise, when it's just a broadside of like, everything you're doing is wrong and we need to do this instead, it can be just too threatening for people to yeah. actually absorb, yeah. I think. So Rob from um, Tasmania has just posted some questions, I think, uh, and there's been a bit of discussion over parents. Um, so Rob, do you want to actually ask that for us? We can see it there, but um, yeah, ask, sure. ask that question. Just um, listening to what you're sharing, David, I think this is this is really, really interesting. I'm thinking about a lot of change that's happening at our school at the moment, which is um, happening at a classroom level with respect to classroom culture. And a lot of what you're proposing is brilliant, but I'm also thinking about our parents whose own mm -hmm. education has been um, journeyed mm -hmm. through and shaped through other practices, which we're now looking at as going, well, maybe they're not having as big a voice in, in education as they once had. Um, what do you think are some of the best ways of engaging parents on this journey? Um, 
I'm, I'm looking at examples perhaps of, you know, if we were to make radical change too quickly, it would cause a knee-jerk as opposed mm -hmm. to an invitation mm -hmm. to get them on the journey and invite conversation. Yeah, I, th I think that's an important piece of this. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. It, 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 it's, and I don't think it's unique to this conversation. So I remember when I, when I first started teaching, my first couple of years in teaching, um, and, and this was when uh, second language teaching had been shifting away from a strong grammar focus into a more communicative um, kind of mode. And there was lots of decent research that was, you know, that basically suggests that explaining grammar to people really doesn't do very much for helping them learn a language. Um, but uh, we'd got a lot of parents who'd been through a, you know, a different model 15 years earlier, 20 years earlier. And the feedback we started getting from parents was that their students weren't doing any work in the language class because they were just talking all the time. Um, I mean, the fact that they were talking in German, right, and this might actually be an achievement didn't seem to leak through, right, but it was, it was like, um, they're not getting enough homework, they're not filling out enough worksheets, right, they're not doing enough grammar exercises. Um, and so we had to actually run a whole series of information evenings where we basically invited the parents in. We, we didn't just run it like an evening lecture, we made it attractive, so we had it like a student performance evening where the students did skits and we put on some food, and then we included a little 20-minute lecture on you know, what, what applied linguistics is saying these days about how brains learn languages. Um, and, and we sort of tried to drip feed that through some, um, some events that had a bit of parent draw to try to basically get them up to speed. Because I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a little unfair to expect parents to be reading education journals um, just because mm -hmm. they put the kids in your school. So, so how, how will the parents learn that the world hasn't stood still since, since they went through if the school doesn't take on that teaching task? Um, so we basically, as a language department, took on the task of teaching the parents how the world was thinking about, about language learning um, and what the gains might be for their parent, for their, for their kids doing a lot of speaking and, and, and so on. Um, another example, we, we, when we did the, uh, another website we worked on was the Teach Fastly website, which focused on faith and science issues. Uh, a, a science teacher developed some resources for that that was focused on... Um, you know, if, if, if you know that in, that in um, the two thirds of the way through the school year, that something that's controversial to parents is going to come up. So origins is going to come up or sexuality is going to come up or whatever. They sort of develop this whole strategy where like eight months earlier, you're sending a letter to the parents as the science teacher saying, hey, I'm glad your child's in my class this year. This year, we're really going to work on how to have good conversations together about difficult topics. And we're going to work on these virtues. And I'm looking forward to working with your child. And you follow it up a month later with, a, with another letter saying, oh, we had this discussion in class the other day. So, you know, you're gradually building this narrative so that by the time you actually get to the, you know, when the bomb drops, then uh, um, hopefully you've built enough of a framework that the parents know what's happening and they've got a relationship with the teacher and there's some trust. And it's not like the first thing they hear is when is when the child comes home and says, uh, you know, we had this discussion today about whether evolution is true or whatever. Um, so, so I think all of these are, are you know, are strategies that schools need to take seriously for any kind of change that's going in school and for any kind of topic that parents might rightly or wrongly have a prior investment in, um, where the school might be representing a different direction, because you don't want to be just coming again, coming sideways and just undermining the parents. You know, have also got an important role uh, in, in, in their child's life. In fact, you know, mm. a, a primary one, most of us would say, right? So, so how do you sort of support that? How do you support... Yeah, with our own staff. How can we do staff meetings more collaboratively, um, mm -hmm. making our staff room more of 
um, a home and our staff relations when we tend to have very hierarchical leadership structures, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, what's, have you got any creative ideas to hold a staff meeting in a, in a more homely manner? Um, well, I think, you know, for instance, uh, I've, I've, I can think of schools where a staff meeting might start with the principal or a vice principal or someone doing five minutes of devotions, right? Um, so is that like a random thought for the day or a thing they read in a Christian paperback last night? Um, or could you actually take that as an intentional series where let's say you engage with the same scripture passage for a semester um, and return to it from various angles and, and sort of stitch thoughts together over time. So again, how do, you, how do you treat this the same way you'd approach teaching a class, right? It's a learning opportunity. Um, and if you're trying to teach something, you're going to loop back. You're going you're gonna to try to string things together coherently. You're going to have a progression. Um, I don't know that we often think of administrative meetings in that kind of way of like, how do we learn things together? Uh, I feel like they're often, they're often sort of driven by whatever comes up. Um, and we're not often intentional about building those kinds of those mm-hmm. kinds of trajectories. I think again, specific practices can help. So one that we've adopted in my department um, over the last year or so through our current department chair, which actually comes from um, uh, restorative justice practices, uh, is to um, actually have an object that gets passed around, and you can only speak while you're holding the object. Mm-hmm. Um, and once you've spoken, you pass it to the next person and each person gets one turn, right? <laughs> and so, yeah. Yeah. uh, that, that immediately changes the dynamics away from, you know, two people dominating a discussion, you know, yeah. somebody not getting to speak, you know, etc. So some of those kinds of intentional ways of structuring interactions can help with certain kinds of conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, Environment. My, my very first principle, something I learned from him, was was that uh, whenever he had a really difficult conversation to have with the staff, he would take us out to a restaurant uh, to have the conversation instead of having it in the school, which mm. cost him some money, but he got a lot much better results out of those discussions because we were all just happier while we were discussing the difficult thing. Yeah. Um, so, so I mean, you know, there's, there's just a whole string of these kinds of... Um, Again, I think the same as with the parents. I mean, maybe it's just because I've got I've got this monomania about pedagogy, but uh, I, I I I sort of think think of all of these as learning learning tasks and as, mm. as pedagogical design. Mm. Yeah. Well, David, I'm aware that it's nearly one o'clock in the morning for you. Is there one last question that someone would like to add? There's been a bit of conversation on the side. That's been some comments that have been really helpful. Um, yeah, my car will get impounded at 2, 2 a.m. Uh, by okay. security. So, uh. <laughs> Is there one last question uh, out there from anyone? Uh, I've got a question if no one else has. Um, yeah, the question at the end of the chapter, you said um, you asked the question for like for reflection and discussion. So I'd be interested, mm-hmm. in, your, I'd be interested in your reflections and discussions. You said, uh, how could you find out from students how they are interpreting and reacting to your teaching mm-hmm. strategy? So how do you find out from students um, how they're interpreting and reacting to your teaching strategies? Um, I ask them. Uh, so that, that might mean, for instance, um, convening a, a little focus group partway through the semester, choosing three students who you think will give you an honest conversation and taking them out for coffee um, and just asking them some strategic questions about the way the class is going or um, what did you think I was trying to do when I did this or what do you think the main, the main point of the last three weeks has been? Um, or, you know, who do you think is most engaged and least engaged and why? And, and just see if, you know, students have got, have got 
theories about what's going on. And it doesn't even matter if the theory is, it's not like students have the God's eye view either, right? But, but they have a viewpoint that's not mine. Um, and, and that's what makes it useful. Um, I do that formally at the end of the semester. So it, it struck me, and I, th I think I talk about this in the book somewhere, but it struck me a number of years ago that, that church liturgies finish with a blessing and a commissioning. You know, the Lord bless you and keep you and go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And college semesters finish with a judgment and a dismissal, where the last thing that happens is you take an exam, somebody posts your grade, and, uh, and then nobody talks to you again. Um, so I started moving my exam out of exam week at the end of our semester into the last week of the semester, and then meeting with students after the final exam. And, and we have a conversation again about, about what did you learn this semester? What was the most important learning moment for you? Um, uh, and so on. Um, on a smaller scale, I use quizzes for this. Um, so pretty much every quiz that I give has a question at the end for, for one free point that's me asking something about the class. So it might be as simple as a multiple choice question. This class is going A, way too fast. My brain's about to explode. B, it's quite challenging, but I'm just about keeping up. C, it's fine, um, I'm not having to work too hard. D, it's going way too slow and I'm bored out of my mind. And that just lets me get a quick temperature take on the distribution across the class of, of, of you know, where everybody's at with the pace of the class, right? Or it might be something else, right? So, um, so thinking of those sort of quick questions that I can ask in, in sort of quiz scenarios, that, that can be really helpful as well. Yeah, I mean, again, it's a lot of just looking, looking out for opportunities to have conversations with students. I mean, you know, when, I mean, students, come to me to ask for help with stuff as well. So that's always an opportunity just to ask a question back and, uh, mm -hmm. and say, so, so what did you think about that thing we did in class yesterday? What did you think that was all about or whatever? So mm. just trying to get a, a feedback loop going as often as possible. And perhaps as a leader doing that with your staff too, um, <laughs> there's been a mention of, you know, using protocols with staff meetings. And I know Emily at Torrens Valley has been doing that really effectively, but do we then as leaders ask our staff, has that been effective? Um, do they feel like there's been more voice, heard, different voices heard? Do they feel that we've used time more wisely? We, we don't often ask our staff those sorts of questions either, do we? With students, there's a, you know, sometimes when I talk to colleagues about this, a little bit of nervousness about can I take up more of students' time to do this? But mm. my experience has been that students have been pretty much uniformly overjoyed that somebody wanted to know what they thought was happening. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And have been quite yeah. willing to, to take time for the conversation. So. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, David, we're going to let you um, <laughs> head off um, home soon. We really want to thank you for making yourself available for this time. Um, and we're really hoping that we'll be able to do this fairly regularly and I think we'd love to invite you back we'll have a think mm -hmm. about some more questions um what do most people think thumbs up yeah I'll give you a thumbs up yeah um and we will file but we'll upload this recording and we'll try and keep some conversation going in readiness for maybe in uh, about two months time about eight weeks time seeing if we can match up with David again daylight saving we'll finish here David so we'll go back an hour um <laughs> But yeah, I just want to say thank you so much and thank you to everyone for making this work. And isn't this a blessing that we have this um, technology that God has enabled us to reach out to each other all around Australia, but also across the world. So thank you very much and um, happy teaching everyone. Bye. Thank you. God bless. Bye.